Good morning. Good to see you. Not easy to see with the lights on us up here. In our context of Luke, uh, the second coming of Christ is, uh, is put to us in chapter 17. Uh, and he gives us uh, the end of 17, beginning in verse 22. And he tells us that the kingdom of God um, has come. It, is a, it, is, it came with its king. There were no signs leading up to it, Jesus said. There are no signs that precede the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus just appeared on the scene. Because the kingdom is associated with the king. So if the king was here, then the kingdom was here. With the king here, the kingdom was here. Some today will just go to great lengths to tell you, no, 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 the kingdom is not here. The kingdom in its fullness is certainly not here. The kingdom of God has not come completely, but the king came. And in chapter 22, I'm sorry, chapter 17, verse 22, uh, Jesus speaks of it. And he says, you will long to see, in verse 22, one of the days of the Son of Man. You will not see it. Because the king is going to ascend. He's going to go, go away. Jesus came to the earth to be crucified, to be resurrected, to ascend into heaven. And he did. And he told his disciples, I'll be back when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. So the question becomes, what do we do between the first coming and the second coming of Christ? The answer is we pray. We pray for the second coming. And why? Because everything we want to happen, everything we want to unfold, all the justice that we want, all the injustices that we want dealt with will be dealt with at the second coming of Christ. I mean, how many times do you watch the news or do you read a story or do you hear something in which you go, Lord, you've got... You've got to return. There's so much injustice in the government now. The lies that are told, you go, Lord, please just come back. The people that, that get trashed. I mean, we've got this great speaker of the house now, don't we? From all indications, this is a good and godly man. He's getting trashed by the, the liberals. If you ever listen to Bill Maher, and I do not recommend it, he's He's a troll. I mean, the just, he, he, he scoffs so hard at our Lord and Savior. If that doesn't offend you, folks, you got something wrong with you. It, it, if you make fun of my mother or my wife or my children or a friend, I'm going to be upset when somebody says what, what he says about Jesus and the Bible. It's offensive. should be offensive. We should be angry at that. Lord, send your justice. And he will. We tend to get more emphatic in our prayers, maybe a little bit more angry. Lord, send it. Where is it? Now, I guess that's okay. Just keep it down. God's in charge. He's got it under control. He knows the day of his return. And he will return. And he will mete out all that justice. And that's what we're to be praying for. What do we pray for? Lord, send your kingdom. Because when your kingdom comes, you will deal with all injustices. But remember... If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, you deserve justice too. But because of God's grace, you and I will not get justice. Isn't that great? That's the last thing I want is justice on my life. God's grace has been poured out through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he begins to tell, uh, he started with a parable last week in chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, about uh, persistence in prayer. And I, let me just confess to you up front, uh, is that I have been a Christian, I'm 55 years old, they call it the double nickel, I'm told, since I just turned that, people were informing me about the double nickel, I get a discount at Denny's, you know, because I 
frequent that establishment so often. Um, and I have been praying since I was a child. You know, I think about how I prayed as a child, and, and, I, and I remember how I prayed as a child. But I confess to you that I don't have it yet. I, I can't, it's, it's strange for me, perhaps even wrong of me to stand up here and tell you, here's how you do it. Here's what it's all about. I always pray. I, have, I am in a constant conversation with God. I murmur, and I'm usually talking to God uh, or arguing with myself about something. But I, I pray regularly. So it's not that I don't pray and I'm a hypocrite. It's that I don't quite understand prayer the same way you don't understand it. Do I need to tell you, God, about what's going on on the other side of the world? You need to help these people? I got that, Lance. I know all about it, far more than you do. And those people we're praying for that need salvation, that we love so dearly, and we just can't imagine ourselves in heaven without, God loves them far more than you and me. Our love's conditional. His is not. And so while we're praying to God and wondering why He won't do what He wants to do, what we want Him to do, I should say, God loves more than you and I can imagine. Literally more than we can imagine. He's got it. And so I, I, I struggle with the mystery of prayer. Why should I pray, Lord? You know everything. And as I said last week, kind of a quotable, is that prayer is not so much how we can change God, but it is the means through which He changes us. It is the means through which He changes us. The longer we remain in prayer, it's not about how we can change Him. It's what He's doing to us in prayer. I believe that. So when Jesus speaks of persistence in prayer, he's not necessarily saying that this will change you, and yet it does in the persistence of it. But it's not persistence in prayer to get anything you want. In fact, the specifics in chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, is for justice. Look at verses 7 and 8. Now, will not God bring about justice to his elect? Who's he going to give justice to? Everyone? No, to his elect. That is, those who believe in his name. Those who were chosen from the foundation of the world. His elect predestined children. And you know you're one of them if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are among the elect. God will bring about justice for those people. Those who cry out to Him day and night. Ask yourself, am I crying out to God for justice day and night? Or did I do it last year? I tell you, verse 8. He will bring about, there it is again, justice for them quickly or swiftly when it comes. Be a better way of putting it. And when he comes back, am I, is he going to find faith on the earth? Or are you going to, to fold over and say, well, Lord, I've been praying and praying and praying, and my, I just lost heart. You never answered me. Will he find faith when he returns? Now, I gave two examples last week of, of Jesus, our Lord, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he died. He prayed on three occasions that God the Father would remove this cup of his wrath. And he said, Father, if you could, if it be your will, will you remove this cup from me. Is there another way, Lord, that I don't have to go to the cross and bear the sins of everyone on the planet, even those who haven't been born? If there's another way, let it be. And the answer was, there is no other way. And Jesus prayed it three times. And he took the no, and it was done. And the apostle Paul had a thorn in his side, whether it be literal or figurative. He even calls it a, a messenger of Satan. Uh, it's someone bothering him. You ever had someone bothering you? I know, your, your kids don't count. Can't pray for them to be removed. Difficult people, difficult times. Lord, remove this. Paul prayed for it three times and he was done. God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, in no way was I saying that that's all you should ever pray for anything. 
Just pray three times. That's, that's not what those mean. There are some things in life that we can recognize as this is just a done deal. The difficult person in my life, done deal. Maybe it's a marriage. Let's just call it a marriage. If you're married to a difficult man, ladies, and you pray, Lord, remove this from me. Either change him or get rid of him, or vice versa. Change her or get rid of her. And God doesn't? Here's the answer. My grace is sufficient. That's the one you married. Dance with the one who brung you. Deal with it. That's an example. Stick with it, unless you're getting beaten or cheated on. Stick with it. Other things we're praying for regularly, like the justice of God. Lord, send your kingdom. I know it's a selfish prayer, Lord, because I had a bad couple of days, but send it anyway. God, God's answer from heaven is always, I will. That, that, that prayer will be answered in my time, God is saying. Persistently praying for God's justice or for God's will. Pray for God's will. Other places in the Gospel of Luke where we see Jesus teaching us to pray is in chapter 11, which would be parallel to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 14, often called the Lord's Prayer. But it's just a model for prayer. It's never to be prayed as a prayer. Did you hear that? It's not a prayer. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, in the 6th chapter, where the model prayer is given in, in Matthew 6, verse 9 and following, right prior to that, Jesus says, don't use vain repetitions over and over, thinking you're going to be heard for your much speaking. And yet, people will take the very following prayer, the, the model for prayer, and use it as a prayer to pray over and over and over and over. The very thing Jesus said not to do. It's not a prayer in and of itself. It's a model for prayer. Luke's version is even shorter, and he says, pray, thy kingdom come. Yes, that's in there, but the first part is, our Father who art in heaven. I always do it in King James because that's where I learned it as a child. But Our Father who is in heaven, let your name be held high. Hallowed be your name. Let it be, in other words, stop letting it be tarnished. And the answer from heaven is, I will. It will happen. But in the interim, you've got to put up with it being tarnished. You've got to let the Bill Mahers of the world run me down. I'll get them in time. Also, we learn in, in Luke 17, 5, that we are to pray for increased faith. Because Jesus said you need to learn to forgive over and over and over. And the disciples said, well, we can't do that. So our prayer is, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith that by believing in you even more with deeper and richer understanding that we will be able to forgive over and over those who hurt us, those who take advantage of us. Increase our faith. So we're praying that God's name be exalted. We're praying that his kingdom come. We're praying for daily bread. And we're praying not to be led into temptation to finish off that first part. That's the, the model prayer. We're also praying for increased faith. And then, as I said in, in chapter 18, verses 7 to 8, we see praying for God's will, to, for divine justice. That's how you pray. Again, I come to you, and I, I'm struggling through the same things, and I'm a pastor. I pray every day. I pray every week in public. People invite me over to their homes for dinner just so I'll pray for no other reason. Yeah, we're inviting Lance over because, hey, if you would, Lance, pray for the food. After that, you know, you've done your thing, leave. Let us have some fun. No one's ever said that, but they think that. It's kind of like at a wedding. Pray, Lance, and then leave so we can have some fun. Which, that would be great, by the way. I, I would appreciate that. No. That's just a joke. In verses 9 to 14, we get the attitude of prayer. 
There's a certain attitude that goes with praying for God's persistence, or for praying, or for being persistent, praying for God's justice. There's an attitude that goes with it. Verse 9, he told them this parable. Note in chapter 18, verse 1, he was telling them a parable, note, to show them, to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. In verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So he's got to, over here, pray always. Don't lose heart. God's going to do what, what he's going to do in his time. But he's telling this parable because there are some who trust in themselves that they are righteous and they view others with contempt. And he gives two people. He's going to take two, one man who's a Pharisee, a religionist. And by the way, even though that we in the modern church, we know, uh, having read the New Testament, we know how wicked uh, the, the Pharisees were. We know how self-righteous they were. Uh, in the first century when Jesus was there, people didn't think that. They were the highest ones. They were the moral, pious men. They were there to keep the peace and show that the law of God was great. They looked good. They probably smelled good. They did everything right, and everyone thought they were fantastic. So to use one of these people, these two men, and by the way, you know when it says, for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, we know that he's talking about the Pharisees. He's going to take this Pharisee and he's going to compare it to the worst of society. And that's the tax collectors. The publicans. Not Republicans, but the publicans. Um, a publican was a tax collector. And a tax collector in Israel, if you were Jewish, there were Roman tax collectors. But the Romans had conquered Israel. Israel, the Jews, were a conquered people. And so a conquered people needs to be taxed. The Romans would employ certain Israelis or Jews, and they would go tax their own people. Well, the Jews were being taxed by their own people, loathed those people. The tax collectors or the publicans were the lowest form of life on earth. You are a traitor to your people. Because a tax collector was to take the given sum that was to be taken from a district to pay Rome, and in order to get paid themselves, they would have to tax them a little bit more and take that money for themselves. And they made a lot of money doing it. They could do anything they wanted. So they were loathed. So you've got the greatest person in Israel, which would be a Pharisee, the one that people viewed in great, uh, with great, um, they, put, they elevated him, and then a tax collector. But they go up into the temple to pray. Now, mind you, the temple in Israel, you go up to it. It's huge. Uh, what's left of it today is a, is a temple. We have what's called the Temple Mount. And what's left of the old temple on that day is the, the, what's called the Western Wailing Wall. It's what you see on the news, and you see the, uh, the pious Jews, you know, bowing back and forth, and, and you can walk to the, to, the, uh, um, to the wall, and you can pray, and there are Hasidic Jews all around. Some of them will ask you uh, if, to pay them, and they'll pray for you, because Jews there believe that their prayers are ten times more powerful than anyone else's. And uh, I had one accost me a couple trips ago, and I was walking up there. I had my baseball hat on because you have to have your head covered. If you don't have your head covered, you just have to walk up like this because this apparently means something. God would not want to see the crown of your head. So I had my baseball hat on, Houston Astros. Actually, it was Dallas Cowboys. You got to bring a, you know, a godly team into the godly city. <laughs> anyway, anyway, he asked if, uh, he said, for $20, I'll pray for you. Or 20, I, I think it was $20. For $20, I'll pray for you. I said, I'll pray for you for free brother? You can just see the, the wheels ticking here. He didn't really. I think that's all the English he knew was for $20. Um, 
But this is, this is where they went. This is where they, they go now. Back then, the, the temple was there. You walk up there, and you come up on the temple mount, and there's people there, and there's various separations. There's the, the separation where only the priests can go. And then there's a separation where the Pharisees could go. The women could only go to some place. And the Gentiles were, were kept at a distance. They could go to their own place. This guy could go up in full view of others. And he goes up to pray. Pharisee. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood. So we see him standing. And he was praying this to himself. Or it could be translated towards himself. About himself. I mean, this prayer is hilarious if it wasn't so sick. God, I thank you. Hey, that's great. First point, he believes in God. He's not an atheist. He's going to the temple to pray. We like men that believe in God and that pray. God, I thank you. It looks like his heart is full of gratitude, doesn't it? That's the way you should start all prayers. Lord, thank you. And then it takes a nosedive. By the way, you'll see the word I, the first person personal, personal pronoun, five times. Five times. God, I I thank you that I am not like other people. Have you, have you ever prayed that way? Lord, thank you. I am really. This is a self-aggrandizing look at me. I really like me. Thank you, Lord, for me. And I thought about that all week. And I thought, you know, I pray the same thing, just not the same way. Here's how I do it. I am thankful for what God has given me, for where I was born, for the parents that God gave me. I was loved. I was born in Texas, a local call to heaven. I was raised in the church. I was raised to know Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that I am not like those born in the Middle East. Born in San Francisco, born to parents that did not love each other, born to parents that, that cared for me, nurtured me, that sat with me, loved me, taught me the Bible, introduced me to Jesus, made a meal for me every day, three of them in fact with snacks in between. Thank you that they disciplined me. I thank you Lord that I wasn't kept from that. So I prayed the same thing. Thank you that I'm not like them. And I had to work through that this week. This guy, however, has a different attitude than that. I, I know in recognizing all those things that I just said, is all by the grace of God, is it not? I mean, if you identify with anything I just said, you recognize it's all by the grace of God. I had no say in the matter. Before I was born, God did not consult me. Hey, do you want to be born to Dave and Janet Waldy down in Houston? Or do you want some of these? Blah, blah, blah. I'll take Dave and Jan. They're pretty cool people. I had no say in the matter. Nothing. My folks, as you did if you're my age, smoked for a while because that was what you did in the 60s and the 70s. Thank you, Lord, that my dad quit smoking and that I didn't get, have, have to suffer the effects of it. Now, some of you might have. It's not that I'm better than you. I'm just thankful that that didn't happen to me. But this guy is not giving God glory. Thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, that's people who... who uh, Cheat people out of their money. I'm not like that. Unjust people who, are, who have no sense of justice and cheat others out of other things. Adulterers, you know, men that sleep around with women that are not their wives. Or even like this tax collector. 
He sees him. Tax collectors didn't really make a normal habit of going up to the temple to pray, to be seen. Everyone hated him. But he sees him. And it would be like someone, you know, you, you see maybe someone you know out of the corner of your eye. Thank you that I'm not like them. This tax collector. Again, associating the man by his, uh, by his occupation. Thank you that I'm not like this. Here's what I do, Lord, that you must be happy with. I fast twice a week, to which I'm sure God in heaven is going, thank you. Thank you that you cheat yourself out of food for me. It means so much to my eternal soul that you didn't eat. My eternal existence is contingent on whether you didn't eat on Monday and Thursday. And you have such sway with your prayers when you don't eat. Because that really intensifies my desire to answer your prayer. I fast twice a week, and they did. In those days, they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. You know, there's nothing in the Old Testament, nothing in the Old Testament that commands one to fast. There is an implication where it's implied in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement where people fasted. But typically, fasting is a way that you, you deprive yourself of what you want for the purpose of prayer. So it's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. But he's telling God, it's not in your Old Testament, Lord, but I fast twice a week. I tithe or I pay tithes of all that I get. Not all that you gave me, but all that I get. Tithing, of course, is throughout the Old Testament. Tithe itself means tenth. When you add all the tenths together, the tithes, it comes out to about 25 to 28 percent. Did you know that? all of which went to pay their government, which was the Levitical priesthood. Later on became the monarchy, the kings as well. I give, I fast, and I pay my tithes. I mean, this is this guy's hand the whole time he's praying is just doing this, a big pat on the back. And so we see that this is a man who's enamored with himself, likes what he hasn't done, loves what he does do, and compares himself and his own righteousness with the unrighteousness of others. Folks, all you got to do is find the worst person on the planet and compare yourself to that person and say, I'm a pretty good person. But you see, what we should be comparing ourselves to, or rather, who, is Jesus. Compare yourself with Jesus and the righteousness of our Lord, and you're never going to think you're good. You're never going to go to prayer and say, look at what I do. Some of you may go to your your, your mother and father this way and say, look at what I've done. You owe me some allowance, maybe a little, little boost in the allowance. Some of you may go to a spouse. Look what a great spouse I've been. I mean, I do this with Cheryl all the time. Do you, do you not sit back and thank God every day for me? I told Paul Hawkins one time, I said, do you ever stop and thank God what a great friend I am to you? Of course, he says yes. No, I don't do that. I mean, in jest I will. Um, because it just gets a dumb laugh. But this guy's serious. So the attitude of prayer in this man that everyone looks to as a great godly leader, his attitude is one of great self-righteousness. I am great, and God, you know it, and let me remind you of it. But the tax collector in verse 13, remember the lowest form of, of, uh, of humanity, because he rips his people off, standing some distance away. He wouldn't dare to go near the temple. 
He's standing some distance away. He doesn't need the fanfare. He was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He could not bring himself to look to God. As if we can look up and see God. No one can. Pharisees couldn't. You and I can't. When they hit a home run, all they're staring at is the top of the ceiling or the sky outside. You know, thank you clouds that I see. It's that's, God's not up there. God is with us. But he would not, in this manner of speaking, Lord, he wants to remain humble. He stays low. Standing a distance away, no fanfare, unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. This is the, the lowest or the highest form of, of seeing yourself in your lowest level. Beating your breast. You ever done that? It's not just a, a little tap. The beating of the breast. In fact, the only other time it's used is in chapter 23 after the death of Jesus when those who went away were beating their breasts over what they saw on that horrible, horrific day where they saw an innocent man brutalized. Even if it wasn't an innocent man just to see someone crucified would horrify any of us. Beat our breasts over what we saw. This man is simply going away beating his breast because he knows What a wretch he is. He was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me. Not a sinner. Some translations have a sinner, but the Greek text has a definite article there. The. He doesn't see himself as a sinner among the rest of the people. He sees himself as the worst of all. Which is what the Apostle Paul calls himself in 1 Timothy 1.15. The sinner. If we begin to see ourselves as we really are, not just a sinner, Lord, I'm just another sinner. You know, you got to put up with everybody else. I'm just among them. When we rightly evaluate ourselves, we see ourselves as the worst of the worst. When we rightly evaluate ourselves. There's too many Christians walking around thinking they're not bad people. We are at our core horrible people. We may do good things. In fact, if we're Christians, we should be doing good things. The fruit of our behavior should be evident to all, but we know who we are inside. And if we know, we certainly know God knows. And we don't even know the half of it. And that's how he saw himself. Have mercy on me. That word for mercy there is is an interesting word because it's not the word for mercy in the New Testament. There is a word for mercy in the New Testament, a Greek word. This is not the word. In fact, the word that's used here is the word propitiate, propitiate to me. It's a theological word. It means to satisfy. When we think of, see, of God's propitiation, it it comes from a Hebrew uh, group of words that means atonement, offering atonement. You see, in the Old Testament, when, when you would sin, you would bring an animal, and you would offer the blood of the animal to atone, which means to cover, to cover the sin Your sin, the animal's blood covers your sin. The animal didn't do anything, but the animal's blood covers your sin. It's a temporary thing. The high priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and take uh, blood on his fingertips from a a lamb, from an animal, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. You know what the mercy seat was? It's those two cherubim that that are on top of, think of the the, the toy box-like thing, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And there's two cherubim with their wings spread out. It's like a seat that the king sits on. And the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, would go in and sprinkle the mercy seat, offering atonement in order to obtain mercy from God. It's a huge prayer. I mean, it's greatly theological. And he is, he's asking God for mercy, sure. But he's saying, Lord, 
atone for my sins. I'm the sinner. Yes, be merciful to me through that atonement, but propitiate me. Be satisfied with my prayer for forgiveness. Be merciful to me, the sinner. You've got this wicked man that everyone hates praying this incredibly humble prayer, and you've got this self-righteous, I should say, a a righteous man on the side of everyone else praying this horrible, self-righteous, wicked prayer, self-aggrandizing, look-at-me prayer. It's pretty evident who God's going to affirm. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That word justified is interesting. Um, This man went to his house justified. The doctrine of justification, uh, as beautiful and wonderful as it is, is not being taught here per se. The Apostle Paul will later come around and, and teach us what justification by faith is. Justification means this, declared righteous. It means declared righteous. It is being declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, we're all sinners. We all know that. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He offered a propitiating atonement. God was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice to atone for the sins of mankind, for all who would believe, more specifically. Paul says, when we do believe, when we trust Jesus, that we know we're sinners, and that God washes our sins away when we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul says we are justified, we are declared righteous by God. I always sweep my hand when I do that, because what does it mean to be declared righteous? It doesn't mean, it does not mean to become righteous. It means to be God's magic wand, as it were, declared righteous. You're not righteous, but I'm going to declare you righteous through, through faith. And all of us know, having been declared righteous, I, I didn't become righteous. I know who I am still. I know what I'm capable of still. Declared righteous through faith in Christ. That's the doctrine of justification. And since I'm on it, just note that the moment you're justified, the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you receive Him as your God and Savior, that moment, you also become sanctified. And why wouldn't you? The word sanctified means to be made holy or set apart. So you're, you're over here, you're a wicked, wretched sinner in unbelief. You believe in the Lord Jesus, you are immediately justified, declared righteous, and set apart. Sanctified. Now you will begin to grow in your sanctification over time. As you read God's Word, as you pray properly, as you endure trials of many different levels, trusting in God along the way, praying and not getting what you ask for, and trusting God nonetheless. That's, all of that is to say is that's not necessarily what Jesus is saying about this man. All of that did not happen because he prayed this prayer. This is Old Testament dispensation. This is prior to the cross of Jesus Christ. Better word might be he was, he was vilified or he was um, uh, God's excused. He was excused. He is more just in his prayer than that righteous, so-called righteous Pharisee in his. He stands out above 
So when we're over here in chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, we're praying persistently for God's justice. In the meanwhile, we're not becoming enamored with ourselves. We're humbling ourselves before God Almighty. And that's really what it is. It's about being humble in prayer. Don't, when you go to, because we know that God knows everything, you don't have to remind God that you worked hard. Some people do. Lord, I've been working hard and, I, and, I've, and I'm not making the right amount of money I need to make. You know this, right, Lord? Mm-hmm. Lord, you know that, that I'm a really good spouse and my spouse doesn't appreciate that, right? You're, you're seeing this, Right? Lord, you see that I'm taking care of myself. I'm, I'm eating healthy and, and blah, 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 but, and, and yet I'm still sick. You see, you see all that, Lord, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. What's your point? I think that's the answer from heaven most of the time. What is your point? Because if God pushed us, our point would be, well, I'm a really good person and you owe me this. And so we're praying like this guy that we ought not pray like. I, 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 look at what I've done for you. One of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Field of Dreams. Uh, and there's many different applications and illustrations that I've got from Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner back in the 80s, an 80s movie on baseball. But one of them is at the end of it all, Kevin Costner built this field in the middle of Iowa. You know, you don't, he's gotten rid of all of his corn. Anybody who lives in Iowa would know about that. You, you chop your corn up and build a baseball field, you're going to lose some money. And all these things are happening. Everyone's benefiting from his field but him. Shoeless Joe Jackson from the past appears on that field because that's why he built it. Shoeless Joe to appear. And he says, look, never once, Kevin Costner says, never once have I asked, what's in it for me when I built this field? And Joe Jackson says, what are you asking, Ray? I'm asking, what's in it for me? And that's where we get He was all selfless in making this field and watching everyone else benefit from it. And in the end, he thought, I'm going to get the best gift of all. And when he didn't, he didn't get to go out beyond that field. Everyone else did, but not him. I want to know what's in it for me. Folks, if that's why we're praying, check yourself. What's in it for me? Folks, you have been saved by the blood of Jesus You were a wretch, a putrid, filthy, horrible sinner, just like me. God owes us nothing and has given us everything. If our prayers don't reflect that, then we don't have that. If our prayers don't reflect humility, then we don't have salvation. God owes us nothing. Take your prayer list and move all those petitions from the top and move them down to the bottom. If you even get to them. And spend your time praising God for who He is, what He's done. And instead of telling Him all the things you've done right, tell Him all the things you've done wrong. Agree with Him. I mean, think about it. You're in an argument with your friend or your spouse. Let's say your friend has done you wrong, and, and they come to you and they say, man, we've had some good times. You know, let's say your friend has, has taken your girlfriend and he stole all your money, and, and, uh, but you grew up together. We've had some good times. You remember them back when we were six years old, we played baseball together? You remember the time we were 10 years old? Remember when we went to college together and we had all that fun? None of that matters. If you took his girlfriend and you took all his money, you have to address that before those good times in the past mean anything. You and I are in the same position. Lord, here's, 
I know you know everything, but let me confess it to you and get it out that I know what you know. Let me fix our relationship, Lord, by confessing my sins to you. That's humility. This guy wanted to tell God all the great things he'd done. Don't. Don't do it. Even though it's implied when you thank God, as I said earlier, it's implied, Lord, I'm thankful that I'm not like others that don't have the great things you've given me, but you've given all of them to me. Now, if you've memorized, say, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which is a great memory passage to to remember, I hope that you tacked verse 10 on there as well. For it is by grace that we have been saved, and, and that is through faith. And it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Otherwise, we would boast. And verse 10 says that, uh, for we are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that were created beforehand. In other words, every good work that you and I participate in, God already did those. He already did them and prepared us to take part in them, but He did them. So there's no thanking or telling God, you need to thank me for what I did. God's going, yeah, I know I did those already. I let you take part in those so that I could gift you again out of my grace. The posture of prayer is humility. And he'll illustrate that. I'll be quick. I'm very convicted about getting people out earlier than I normally do. And Lord willing, we're going to blame it on the Lord. Lord willing, I will. Because if he's not willing, we'll just stay out at the same time. Not my fault. Gives an example of, of people bringing infants or babies to Jesus. Verse 15 to 17. They were bringing even their babies, which, by the way, this word for babies is a word used by Apostle Paul for kids up to the age of they're able to understand Scripture and be taught. So it's not just little cute babies, it would be children. They were bringing even their babies, which, by the way, were loathed in the early uh, part of uh, early first century. The kids are on the lowest level. Don't bother us with babies. They, meaning parents, were bringing their babies to him, that's to Jesus, so that he would touch them or, or give them a blessing. But the disciples saw it. When they saw it, they, re- they were rebuking them. Get your kids out of here. Our Lord doesn't have time for this. They were rebuking the families. And yet these people are illustrating how you come to Jesus with boldness, with a smile on your face. If you had your baby, wouldn't you want to bring your baby to Jesus and say, here's what you gave me? Look at him. Look at her. We, we got to visit with some good friends this past weekend in Dallas, and, and they brought their baby out. What a, what a beautiful baby. And, and everyone, who doesn't love a baby? If you don't love a baby, you got, you got issues. Especially when you can give the baby back. You know, you can love me more. You, you like to grab those hams, you know, the, on, on what will become legs one day. They're just stumps. You look here, you know, the God in the beginning, he just, he doesn't, God doesn't believe in necks. It's just a torso and splat a little head on there. The neck will grow. The neck is like sanctification. It'll grow. But they're beautiful babies. Sometimes. And they're bringing them to Jesus and the disciples are going, get them out of here. Verse 16, but Jesus called for them. Mark chapter 10 verse 14 says, Jesus was indignant with his disciples in the same context. How dare you keep these people and their babies from me? Don't you dare say no. Bring those babies here. You know, you, you know a good man, a man is, a, is one who loves a baby, who loves a little animal, loves a cute animal. And not all animals, but cute animals. Who can be gentle. That's a, ba- that's a man. Who can say gentle things. If you were raised in the 40s, 50s, you were raised in a generation where man doesn't cry, you were taught wrong. 
You were taught that a man doesn't, doesn't show affection. You were taught wrong. It's a terrible generation for, for the way men were, were to be defined. Uh, a man loves. A man loves his wife and doesn't mind saying it. A man hugs his children, kisses them in public. I'll never forget, a, my little boy had a, had, a, had a hernia when he was five weeks old. Had a hernia operation. Uh, doctor looked at it and said, we need to get him to the, to the emergency room right, or to the operating table right now. And he gets, you know, he brings out, they bring him out. He's got cords all over him. Looks terrible. He's, he's screaming. Five weeks old, my little baby boy, first baby. And I held him. I was in the room with him. You know, he didn't have a neck back then either. His little cheeks were off. I just love, I love my children. And I love them. And, and I was holding him and I was kissing him as I did. You can't, can't avoid those fat cheeks. I was kissing him underneath his neck. And, you know, I love my boy. And this woman comes in and she's a, She's an orderly, I guess, and she was an older woman. I, I say, I'm not going to say how old she was because that would get me in a lot of trouble, but she was older than me, and she was from that generation, and she stopped in her tracks, and she said, I said, can I help you? And she started to cry. She had a little, she, she, her voice broke anyway, and I said, what? She said, I've never seen a man kiss a baby. I thought, how sad. You've never seen a man kiss a baby? It's my baby. I'm glad to ruin your life. Men should kiss babies. Our Lord Jesus Christ was indignant with anyone who would refuse a baby from him. Let him come here. Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So in the context of prayer and the right attitude of prayer, how does a child come to us with absolutely no coolness? I mean, teenagers do. They learn to butter it up a bit. But a kid comes together. They're all snot nosed. They got crust on their lip. They got stained ice cream over here and, and a popsicle over here. Daddy, can I have a cookie? Uh, or, or, or can I have this? It's, it's a bold thing for them to ask. You're going to, but they know who to ask. And there's no guile in them. They're just humble. They're bold, I should say, but humble. Their whole world is their parents. And that's the way Jesus is saying, let them come to me. The kingdom of God belongs to those who would come boldly to God, yet in humility. That we would come to God at all is boldness, but in humility. How many of you are thinking Hebrews 4.16 right now? Let us come boldly before the very throne of God and stay there to find mercy and receive grace to help us in our time of need. One of my first passages I ever had to memorize. Let us come boldly before the very throne of God. That is, Lord God Almighty. Whether you look to heaven or look down, I don't deserve this. But like a child, your child, I boldly ask you. I don't deserve it. But will you give me this? Permit the children. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus closes in verse 17. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. No child comes before his parents. I didn't say teenager, but no child comes before his parents and says, God or mom, dad, look at what I did. I did this. I did that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. No kid does that. It's just a bold request from the one person they know can give them what they want. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. We are to pray persistently for God's justice and the coming of his kingdom. And we are to pray humbly before a very holy God as wretched sinners, asking him humbly to do his will. Those who do so go away vindicated. 
justified. And those of us who pray such as justified, declared righteous Christians, prove ourselves to be justified, declared righteous Christians. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today, all of us together, me talking, but all of us together. We pray together for you to return. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. We ask you to send your kingdom and let your will be done in the midst as we wait for that. May we announce the kingdom that it came and it's coming back. May we long for it. May may it be the longing of our soul, Lord, that your kingdom come above anything and everything else. And when we come before you, Lord, remind us that we're sinners. But not just that. Please, Lord, always remind us that though we're sinners, you are a great God who saved us through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. That in spite of being wretched sinners, wicked people, your death on the cross atoned for it, propitiated it. You were satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. Through faith, we have that. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Thank you. May that be the cry of our soul, persistently asking for your will, humbly coming before you. This we pray humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord God bless you, my friends. Go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.